tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. You're listening to Meals That Made History. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. And before we get to today's show, we're going to take just a quick look back on what has been a pretty crazy year. Now, I know more than a few people will be glad to see the end of good old 2016. But even if we're more than happy to bid farewell to this particular trip around the sun, there have been a few bright spots, like this podcast. We started this journey on a lark way back in May, and to be honest, we had no idea what we were doing. And now, a little more than nine months later, we can hardly think of doing anything else. It's been a wild, crazy learning on the job ride these past 14 episodes, and all we can say is, there's so much more to come. In 2017, we're teaming up with chefs and historians from all over the world to bring you stories of some of the best, famous, and most unusual meals in history. We'll be taking a brief break, but we'll be back and better than ever in January with so many more great stories of dining throughout the ages. And what better way to cap off our last episode of 2016 than in the season of feasting? And during this Christmas season, it seems like one animal more than any other pops up on holiday tables from Havana to London to Rome. Right. Now the Christmas trees are up, the tinsel's up, everything's up. So what are we going to do now? We're going to cook a classic Christmas ham and tell you Christmas would not be Christmas in our family without a whole ham. Christmas would never be the same without a beautiful, delicious, honey-glazed ham. Across that long... Tell me about this. What do we got here? How you doing, bud? We got our first annual Christmas koshan. That's right. Pretty amazing. We got whole pig showing up, bacon fried cabbage, boudin. You name it, brother. It's going to be a good time. Ah, the good old Christmas ham. A staple of many a holiday dinner around this time. But that spiral-cut centerpiece is just the latest in a worldwide tradition stretching back a thousand years or more. From the ancient Roman festival of Saturnalia to the medieval Norse solstice bonfire. From the Cuban-China box pig roast to the Filipino spit-roasted lechon. All over the world, pigs have been a staple to many a holiday meal. But it's not just on the dining room table where pigs have been known to pop up during the festive winter season. Good old Porky, or rather his wild cousin the boar, has a leading role each year in a unique tradition celebrated throughout the U.S., Canada, and England. And uh, joining us right now, 
from uh, Trinity United Methodist Church is uh, Becky Isaacson. Good morning, Becky. Well, hi, Brad. How are you? Any better than I'd be twins. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I know. We look so much like. Yes, of course. Becky, this is uh, amazing because we've never really uh, taken a moment to talk a bit about the Boar's Head Festival. Now, we have people listening this morning who are going, Boar's Head, what's that? And this is, I found over the years, like the last 18 of them, because I've had... (laughs) Two children literally grow up in that festival. That is correct. You have. They've gone from winter sprites to snow queens and everything in between. So uh, how would we, and the hardest thing I have is try to trying to explain to people exactly what this uh, very imposing performance is all about. You might have better luck than I. Well, it is a celebration of Epiphany, which is the Three Kings Day, normally 12 days. This is the Boar's Head Festival a unique North American Christmas tradition that's anything but your typical holiday play. Churches from Springfield, Massachusetts to Louisville, Kentucky are transformed into medieval halls for the season. There are kings, queens, court jesters, a full complement of fairy sprites, bakers, and beefeaters, not to mention an appearance by Father Christmas himself. During the festival, you'll hear Christmas carols, watch a live nativity play, and in some areas, you'll even get a bit of bagpiping for good measure. Local tradition aside, what thing ties these festivals together? Each begins with the presentation of a giant wild boar's head, usually made out of paper mache or wood. It's marched down the church aisle to its very own medieval tune, called, of course, the Boar's Head Carol. Boar's head in hand bear I, bedecked with bays and rosemary, and I pray you, my masters, be merry. Quod estis in convivio, caput apri defero, red and slavdes. Now, who could turn down a Christmas carol that doubles as a recipe for roast pig? Boar's Head festivals can be the highlight of the Christmas season for these communities. Since there's no specific date associated with the festival, you can find them going from early December to mid-January. Regardless of when it's held, though, you can trust it's going to be a massive affair. With all those sprites, butchers, and bakers, casts for the festival can number into the hundreds and often take most of the year to plan and set up. For many folks... Boar's Head Festivals are beloved traditions, some going back 30 or 40 years. In Louisville, Kentucky at St. Paul's Methodist Church, it's a way to get the whole community together. I'm Pauletta Matthews. I viewed the first Boar's Head, and my husband was participating in that as a character in the the, uh, performance, and I had worked on costuming. My name is Emma Westland. My first boar's head, I was seven years old and I got to be the gold sprite and I was the first one to be wearing the new costume. That's the one that's still used today. Boar's head. I tell people about boar's head and they'll say, you can do that after Christmas? And it means to me an extension of Christmas. It's a time when you don't have to cook anything, you don't have to wrap anything, you just show up and have wonderful music and all the, the stories. For the St. Paul's community, it wouldn't be a Boar's Head Festival without the music, 
dancing or costumes. Even though a traditional English dinner is served before every performance, the food plays a distant second to the Christmas carols and nativity play. That papier-mâché boar's head has become just a symbol of an ancient culinary feasting tradition, a lingering tie to a custom imported to the U.S. by French and British immigrants more than 100 years ago. So how did we get to a festival named Boar's Head without an actual boar? We might be getting closer to the answer if we look at the many colleges and universities around Canada and the U.S. that also hold annual Boar's Head festivals. At the University of Rochester, the Boar's Head Dinner is a time-honored winter tradition, held every year since 1934 at the end of the fall semester. Just like the churches in Massachusetts and Kentucky, the university cafeteria is transformed into a medieval hall for the performance. But instead of a focus on music and Christmas pageantry, here it's the food that brings the community together. Over 500 students are invited each year to toast the end of the term. Capped off, of course, with the presentation of a boar's head. And a real one this time. No paper mache here. Instead of the boar's head serving as a symbol of the Christian holiday of Christmas, as at St. Paul's, the boar's head at Rochester is passed around between different student societies, considered a badge of honor for the university clubs. Welcome to the orchestra that is boar's head. This is the 78th annual boar's head feast. We have about 500 people coming to dinner tonight. Oog! Can you help me with this one? And we make it look really pretty in here, so it really, you know, we transform what is a bland dining hall um, into a pretty spectacular place. You gotta have muscles to do this. Can't be weak. We try to, you know, take it back a couple of hundred years or so. This is probably one of the longest standing traditions on campus, aside from probably convocation. So, you know, it's really one of those special things that people just keep on coming back for more. A tradition and it's something that a lot of students feel that even if they're not exactly sure what they're coming to a lot of students feel it's something they need to do before they graduate. Part of the dinner is the actual boar's head. We have a roasted boar's head with an apple stuck in his mouth. The idea of the passing of the boar's head is that one student organization recognizes another student organization so it's a kind of a way of saying we think you've done a really great job of contributing to campus and really contributing to the community of campus and we're what we want to recognize you for that. We are pleased to pass the boar's head to the DeLions organization. I'm just really happy. <laughs> we are pleased to accept the boar's head. <laughs> Even though I'm vegetarian. It's really just a time for everybody to kind of get together at the beginning of the holiday season and have some fun with each other before finals start. The dinner at the University of Rochester is among the oldest boar's head festival in North America. And though these festivals once were celebrated in schools throughout the U.S. and Canada, many of the school tradition seems to have faded away in the 1960s and 70s. Interestingly, right around the time that many U.S. churches adopted the tradition for their own Christmas celebrations. But the question remains, did anyone actually ever eat the boar's head? Why isn't it a spiral-cut ham festival? Where did this boar's head tradition even come from? And why did it start as a school tradition in North America? 
To answer all these questions, we need to understand why these American churches and universities are transforming themselves into medieval halls every December. And that takes us to Europe, right around 800 years ago. And like many holiday traditions, there isn't just one origin story of the boar's head, but several. One story takes us to early December in London, in the mid-14th century. The city guild of butchers found themselves in a tough spot. Although everyone who could afford it was interested in having a bit of meat on their plate in medieval England, the job of butchery wasn't exactly the most prestigious one. The job was considered an unclean profession, and many cities prohibited butchers from setting up shop in the middle of town. Although it may not sound fair, these regulations were often more practical than anything else. Without the benefit of refrigeration to keep meat fresh for customers, animals needed to be brought live into the city and were slaughtered only when necessary. And your medieval butcher was responsible for the entire process, killing and cleaning every animal that came into his shop. Understandably, then, this meant a butcher shop could be a pretty gruesome place to visit. Without running water or other services to cart the bits and blood away from the shop, butchers were often tempted to dump offcuts right into the street. Something, understandably, urban officials weren't exactly keen on. And if a butcher wasn't careful, it could land him in jail. But it wasn't just the idea of unsightly meat being left out in the street that made officials uneasy. It was the smell. Several rumors linger about the horrors of the Middle Ages, including some stories about pretty noxious odors. I remember visiting a tourist attraction in York, which promised to transport you to a medieval city complete with accurate sights, sounds, and smells. Now, I don't want to give you too much of a mental image, but let's just say I now understand why the scented handkerchief was such a popular item back in the day. But contrary to popular belief, bad smells bothered and even worried folks during the Middle Ages. Many medieval physicians believed in what was called the theory of miasma, the idea that bad-smelling air could literally make you sick. And... Tonight on NBC... Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story... Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Nothing smells worse than rotting meat. So butchers often were chief suspects when things didn't smell right in town. And knowing what went on in the shop, you didn't exactly want to be neighbors with the medieval butcher. In 1343, London city authorities were forced to step in to give the butchers a specific spot to wash their meat, since no one else wanted them around. Despite the protests of the neighbors, 
the butchers were given a spot near Fleet Prison, conveniently located to get water from the nearby Thames River. And to thank the city for its kindness, the butchers agreed to present the mayor of London with, you guessed it, a boar's head, each Christmas from then on. So if you find yourself near Butcher's Hall in London in early December, which is located near the Museum of London and the Barbican, you can follow the blue liveried butchers as they make their way, complete with pipe and drum, all the way to the mayoral mansion to present their annual boar's head. And ironically, just like in the U.S., the boar's head is a vegetarian crowd-pleaser, made of papier-mâché instead of the real thing. But you may be asking yourself, why would the London butchers give the mayor a boar's head? Though it may seem unlikely to modern palates, boar was a delicacy in medieval society. If pork was good, boar was better. Loved by ancient Romans, boar meat appeared on royal and imperial tables throughout the medieval and renaissance eras. And if you think the whole nose-to-tail trend is something new, think again. Medieval cooks used the entire animal in cooking, including, of course, the head. Some of the earliest recipe books we have include preparations for boar's head, including a German gem from the 16th century, which recommended boiling and basting the head with wine, serving it with a sauce made from cherries, ginger, pepper, cloves, and almonds. What often made boar so prized was the danger in acquiring it. Wild boars were a medieval nuisance, a dangerous animal that was responsible for more than a few royal deaths, not to mention plaguing many a medieval town. And if you know your Game of Thrones, you'll know boars are not to be trifled with. Calling someone a boar, ironically, was a good thing back in the medieval age. Boars were the very epitome of ferociousness in the medieval world. Knights often aspired to being compared to the animal as a symbol of their courage. Even King Arthur is called the Boar of Cornwall in medieval Celtic literature. And the English medieval King Richard III even chose a boar to feature on his royal badge in the 15th century. Not that it did him much good on the battlefield. So the legendary ferociousness of the wild boar meant that it was a brave soul who was willing to take one down which, interestingly, gets us to perhaps the most famous origin story of the Boar's Head Festival. And it doesn't take us to a medieval royal hunting party, but instead to another medieval invention, the university. By the 1300s, universities were the new hip thing in medieval Europe. Popping up in Bologna, then Paris, a small town just west of London was one of the first English cities to boast its own center for higher learning. What is today known as Oxford University was back in the 1300s just a scattered collection of independent colleges, often dedicated to a monastic order like the Franciscans or funded by the aristocracy or even royalty. One of these, founded by the chaplain of the royal household, named his college in honor of the Queen of England at the time, Queen Philippa, the wife of King Edward III. The Hall of the Queen's Scholars, as it was officially known, was founded in 1341, and from then on enjoyed the favor of the Queen, who donated land and money to the college throughout her life. Now, life for a medieval scholar was a pretty strict one. 
Students were expected to live, study, and pretty much remain in their colleges at all times. Not that it was a bad life. The college employed a large staff to cook and clean for the scholars. And the original statutes for the college required the permanent employment of both a cook and an in-house brewer and baker. Students were given at least two meals every day, which included a daily ration of bread and beer. The statutes even went so far as to indicate how much the bread for each student ought to weigh. Colleges soon became known for their food, often taking to poaching especially good cooks or brewers from other colleges, a tradition that continues today. Now, even the most serious scholar can get antsy from time to time. And so it was that sometime in the late 1300s, as the story goes, a scholar found himself walking through the forest, his nose buried in a tome of Aristotle. Now, the poor student was apparently too engrossed in his reading to notice the approach of a wild boar. When the scholar finally looked up from his book, the boar was already nearly upon him. And without any other weapon nearby, the student fought back with the only object he had. He hurled the weighty manuscript of the boar as it leapt up at him, mouth open wide. And as luck would have it, the student had timed things perfectly. The boar caught the book in its throat, and down it came, literally choking on the words of the Greek philosopher. And certainly not one to pass up an opportunity for boar meat. The scholar dragged the conquered beast back to the college, and not long thereafter, the entire student body dined on the medieval luxury of roasted boar's head. I don't know about you, but to me the story doesn't hold that much water. Of course, it's never mentioned how the student gets out to the forest with a tome of Aristotle, especially given how most books were literally chained to the library walls in the medieval period. And I don't know how many boars have been taken down by reading material over the years, but it can't have been many. Now, any information about this brave medieval scholar conveniently has been lost to the sands of time. But the valiant, if mythical, feat is still celebrated every year at the Queen's College in Oxford, at what is today called the Boar's Head Gaudi, held at the end of the fall term in early December. And just like in the U.S. and Canada, the boar's head is paraded into the college dining hall, accompanied by the college choir, singing, appropriately enough, the boar's head carol, a 15th century English song that may also give us a clue as to how the medieval dish was served, with references to bay and rosemary leaves. The boar's head in hand bear I, bedecked with bays and rosemary. Whether or not the song refers to the Oxford students' epic boar fight is still up for debate. Some final verses of the song end with a Latin phrase, in reginensi atrio, which translates to, in the hall of the queen, a nod to the supposed original location for the boar's head feast in Oxford. Which on this day to be served is in but some say the carol points to a much older tradition, one where pre-Christian Anglo-Saxons and Norse sacrificed a boar in midwinter to their local gods as part of the Yule celebrations. 
These pre-Christian traditions were transformed and adapted in the Middle Ages to become part of the Christian celebration of Christmas, an association with Yule we still have today. What is clear is that boars, and eventually pigs, have been a common centerpiece for many a Christmas meal, although they face some competition over the years from other meats, such as the goose, a Victorian Christmas favorite, and the turkey, which may be more popular today in some Canadian and English homes than the traditional ham. But are these just modern versions of the Christmas boar? Take the southern U.S., where a New Year's favorite of hog jowl, basically pig's head, and black-eyed peas are eaten to bring luck in the new year. Such a tradition may be a close culinary echo of the medieval boar's head tradition. So forget the eight tiny reindeer. This year, I'm putting some holiday wild boar in the front yard as our house's official animals of the season. You know, keep the neighbors guessing. But no matter what is on your table this winter, all of us here at the feast wish you the very best for a happy new year. Thanks for listening, and stay feasting. After all, tis the season. A very special thanks this week goes to Kathy, Amy, and the whole community at St. Paul Methodist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as the University of Rochester, for letting us use some of their great videos on their Boar's Head Festivals. We'll put up links to their full videos on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org. And if you happen to be in the Louisville area this winter, you can still get tickets for this year's Boar's Head Annual Log Festival, held December 29th through 31st. For more information, please visit their website at www.stpaulchurchky.org. And if you're still looking for gifts this holiday season, we still have a few limited edition Feast t-shirts available on our website. There aren't many left, so grab one before they're gone. And if you're a fan of the Feast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We count on our listener support to keep us up in the charts. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review so other folks can find us too. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Episode music provided by Jazar. Technical direction by Mike Port, who found a whole episode on medieval pigs boring. Get it? Boring? Man, that is truly awful. Anyway, we'll be taking a brief break to come up with some brand new feasts for you in 2017. But until then, have a wonderful holiday season. I'm Laura Carlson. And this is The Feast.